So this evening I am going to talk a little mostly about the heart and compassion and how this practice moves through the heart and how we bring heartfulness to ourselves, to each other, to life. And it's particularly as we transition and, and, you know, think about going home and go home to, um, you know, to just to reflect a little on the importance of how we take all of this inner work into our lives, into our relationships, into, you know, the nitty-gritty of life and, and particularly the importance of uh, bringing heartfulness in the same way that we brought that here. So I want to start with a story, which I am very fond of. And I like this story because it's a very simple expression of what happens when we meet the tenderness of someone with simple attention and kindness, which is really the fruition of this practice, is is learning how to meet life with a kind-hearted attention. So it's written by a taxi driver who's just about to finish his shift in the middle of the night. And he gets one last call and he drives up to the apartment building. He knocks and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, voice says, just a minute, answers a frail elderly voice. He writes, I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman, in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one lived in it for years. The furniture was covered with sheets, nothing on the walls. Would you carry my bag to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the car and returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly towards the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. Oh, it's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I treat my mother. Oh, you're such a good man, she said. When we got to the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through downtown? I said, well, it's not the shortest way to get there, she said. And and I answered and she said, oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over them and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she'd once worked as an elevator operator. She'd had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd gone dancing as a little girl. Sometimes she just asked me to slow down in front of a particular building on a corner and would sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of light was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired now, let's go. We drove in silence to the address she'd given me. It was a low building, a small convalescent home with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab as she, as, and as soon as we pulled up, I opened the, the trunk and took the smoke suitcase to the, to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you? She asked, reaching into her purse. Oh, nothing, I said. 
almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. It's very touching, the story. It's hard to get through sometimes. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that night. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, or one was, who was impatient to end her shift, his shift? What if I'd refused to take the, the, the run, or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. So, you know, as teachers, we often get the question, well, how do we, what do, how does this relate to life? You know, what do we do? How do we, how does this practice translate? You know, we'll talk about that tomorrow. But it all translates. I just had that question. I was meeting with the C people take, have, taking CEs, getting CEs for this retreat. And it all relates because this is life. This is no different than life. It's just a quiet, silent, slow version of life. It's not different. It's less complicated, but it's the same stuff, right? It's our bodies and our hearts and our minds and our ways of relating to what's here. And hopefully we bring some of that at times to to the world, to ourselves in the world, as we do here, because this is also the world. So, um, you know, the essence is we bring this quality of presence, which you've been developing beautifully for a week, the quality of heartfulness, which or sensitivity, which you've also been developing this week, and, and we integrate them into this kind-hearted presence, this loving awareness, compassionate presence. And I mentioned this this phrase, and I and I want to repeat it. This uh, line: "Be kind to every person you meet, because each has been asked to carry a great burden, or is carrying a great burden." And I, I think that's a great maxim for living, right? Because we never know who this person is, what they're going through, what their lives have been like, will be like. And so, can we be kind? And as we've been looking very intimately with experience and life and looking at some of these universal truths of life, we know from our direct experience it's not easy, right? There's a lot of unsatisfactoriness. There's a lot of pain in life, in our own hearts, in our bodies, in our minds, in our circumstances, in our relationships, in the bigger social uh, experience of life. And last night we were exploring the, oh, a few nights ago, I forget when now, the, you know, this teaching of dukkha, you know, and the, one of the, the seeds of that is the, the transience of life, the uncertainty of life, as we're exploring in meditation today. I just got a call, email from a friend, uh, and a friend of mine is, is just, uh, in hospice, just went to hospice. He's transitioning. 
And it came as a shock, even though I know he has bone cancer. But last time I saw him, he looked remarkably radiant, as some people can do in when struggling with a condition that brings out some life force. And then now he's probably transitioning this weekend. Right? So we meet these sudden, have these sudden losses. We never know when something like that's going to happen to us or to a loved one. You know, the fires that we've just been through, tens of thousands of people are just a whole town wiped out. Schools, shops, houses, tens of thousands of houses. Or the change is slow, you know, as we talked about, the, the, the tenderness that comes from aging, from sickness. And I have a dear friend who's had Parkinson's as a, as a young man, and um, Sometimes I saw him recently. Said he, he said sometimes because the the whole you know nerve, the whole musculature, whatever it is, t- starts to tighten. He says sometimes it's like living, being in this trapped cage that keeps shrinking. You know, he feels imprisoned in his body. So there's these things, but he looks great. <laughs> you wouldn't know meeting him unless you knew him that he's carrying that kind of burden. You know, so we're asked to meet our humanity, and we're asked to meet the humanity of others with tenderness, with care, with sensitivity, with compassion. Right? And just to think about all the ways that you've experienced your humanity this week, right? In all of the both beautiful, sublime ways, the profound ways, and also the profane, the, the nitpicky, the, the way the mind gets, you know, we can be wishing loving kindness for all beings, and then, you know, we get pissed off because, I don't know, someone's in our way on the stairs, or somebody didn't hold a door for us. We hear that swishy pants, and we go, "Oh God!" Thought they would take, you know, change them after that talk he gave and <laughs> lecture on swishy pants. <laughs> you know, or maybe you part of your retreat as it was for some of you meeting these tender young places inside of us. Right? We all carry these younger structures that are vulnerable, scared, lonely, sad longing, empty, right? that's very tender. Right? And how we hold those more younger parts of us, the sensitive parts. Or maybe you are touching into some old wounds and pain and traumas, right? and how that's conditioned you to maybe, maybe feel fear or anxiety when it's not actually, when there's nothing to be afraid of. Or you've been listening to the critic telling you that your meditation is not good enough yet. Not as good as your neighbors, <laughs> who looks really enlightened right now. You know, or everybody else except you seem to have got the teaching. <clears throat> this is uh, uh, Janine Roth on the critic. 
for some reason, we are truly convinced that if we criticize ourselves enough, the criticism will lead to change. If we are harsh enough, we will believe we'll end up being kind. If we shame ourselves, we believe we'll end up loving ourselves. It has never been true, not for a moment, that shame leads to love. Only love leads to love. So, and yet, we might even know that, and yet we judge ourselves, and yet these patterns are deep. You know, there's uh, something, some story that, I forget who wrote, Portia Nelson, autobiography in five short chapters. Some of you have probably heard this. It's an old sort of parable or something. I walk down the street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. There's a hole in it. I don't see it. I fall in. It's not my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. Uh, uh, I pretend not to see it. I fall in. Still not my fault. Still takes a while to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. I see it. I fall in. It's a habit. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down a different street. Right? So we, you know, this, we're in, we're in number three. There's a hole. It's called beating myself up, giving myself a hard time unnecessarily, whatever it is. I see it. I still do it. It's a habit. It takes a long time to let it go. Right? That's, that's the realm of practice. Eventually we find new streets. But it doesn't necessarily, sometimes it happens quickly, but usually it's slow. So we've been plumbing this theme of attitude and relationship, and I'm going to continue with that theme, in particular, how we relate to our suffering. Can we hold our pain and struggle with kindness or with compassion? in the same way that we might for a friend or a loved one, or even a stranger sometimes, we can have more compassion for a stranger than we do ourselves. This is from Ellie Weissel, a Holocaust survivor. Suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. Yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can also elevate human beings. Practice helps us to bear our suffering well. So each moment we have a choice. right? So each time you get lost down the rabbit hole of some pattern, some thought, you know, drama, some catastrophe that you know is just a story in your own mind, can we see it and can we forgive ourselves? Can we be patient and kind for our repetitive neurosis that we, you know, we can say, well, I should know better, and we do, and yet, and yet. This is from Maya Angelou. She says, it is very important for every human being to forgive herself or himself, because if you live, you will make mistakes. It's inevitable. But once you do and you see the mistake, then you forgive yourself and say, well, if I'd known better, I'd have done better, that's all. I'm not sure if that just contradicts what I just said, but anyhow. <laughs> if we all hold on to the mistake, we can see, we can't see. All right, listen up. 
If we all hold on to the mistake, we can't see our own glory in the mirror because we have the mistake between our faces and the mirror. We can't see we're cap- what we're capable of being. Isn't that a great thing? You look in the mirror and all you see is the foible or the mistake, the thing that you can't forgive yourself for. That's all you see. You don't see the goodness of the person behind the mistake. So, um, so this practice trains us to meet ourselves and, and, and life and the, and, the, and the challenge and the difficulty over and over and over. It's a very courageous thing to do, to sit with our own pain, our own existential angst, our tenderness. I went through, some years ago now, I went through uh, uh, a really uh, intense anxiety phase. Um, and, um, which I've got in my, you know, I have anxiety in my system. And, uh, through a series of conditions, uh, this intense waves of anxiety came. And, um, I was up on a solitary retreat in this remote, remote place in the forest on an island that took, uh, three plane rides. A two boats, a taxi, and a shuttle to get to this little cabin. I was going to write for a month, and I thought, I'll lock myself in this cabin, I'll get some writing done. And I ended up having some panic uh, because of some stuff that was going on in my life. And it was really hard, and I had to take all those same transportations back home because it wasn't skillful to, to stay in that very isolated place with anxiety. And the anxiety lasted for many, many months. Uh, it was a very painful part time in my life. And um, like a good meditator, I tried to meditate it away. You know, I tried to use all the tricks in the trades. You know, I'd love it away and mindfulness away and meditate it away and samadhi it away. And, and of course, that doesn't work. It just stays around. It gets stronger. And, you know, that's why life and, and practice is humbling because it forces us to actually soften into and eventually surrender into and melt into and open to the the reality, the tenderness, the pain, in this case intense anxiety. And I, I had it was a, just such a great practice of having to completely melt all of the panic in my body, you know, day after day, soften all around my torso. And to really love the anxiety, love the body that was anxious, you know. And over time, that love and that tenderness became very accessible, and the anxiety ceased to be problematic, and eventually it, it moved out of the nervous system. And of course, when we practice like that with our own challenges, then of course it trains us how to meet others, right? Because it's not, you know, I'm not the only anxious person in the world. Anybody anxious here? <laughs> right. So this practice is training us to feel compassion. How do we turn towards the suffering here or there or globally, socially with care? So the Dalai Lama said, if you want to know what compassion is, look deeply into the eyes of a mother as she cradles her sick and fevered child. It's that tender, it's that passionate and fierce. 
So I think of the building blocks of compassion builds on empathy and two facets of empathy I think are important to notice. One is with we can when we're with someone who's suffering or with ourselves, well, particularly with another, we feel with, we resonate with, compassion to suffer with. We literally sense the other person's experience. And then there's a, a, a cognitive layer, which is we're able to put ourselves in their shoes because we know from our own experience that mindfulness practice actually builds the muscle of empathy because we know our own experience and so we we can put ourselves in the shoes of another important important skill and then the third layer is we are able to feel that aspiration that wish that desire and movement the impulse of the heart to want to care to want to relieve to want to help in whatever way alleviate the suffering so, and we all have this capacity. It's not foreign, right? I used to, I used to not like the word compassion because it sounded very lofty. And I didn't think I had any because it sounded so, you know, grand. And it's basically just a caring. It's just the caring response to others. Yeah, and we have it innate within us. The heart wants to care. Someone falls down in front of you. You don't even think about whether you should pick them up. You just, you're there. It's just, we're hardwired as social uh, beings to care. And and it lights up when we're feeling compassion. The the happiness centers in the brain light up because we're conditioned to be moved that way to survive. The the word love in Darwin's um, What's this book? Origin of Species. The word love features over 90 times in that book. And survival of the fittest only twice. And someone reframed his teaching as it's, it's the survival. What was the phrase? It was a cute phrase. It's the survival of the caring. That we survived as a species through love, not through competition caring for each other and that's as much needed now if not more than than ever right in this world that's become socially divided politically divided and racially divided economically divided i mean we're living in these very divisive times where where there's a lot of othering and otherness and out of that comes racism and bigotry and all the the pains of that and the refugee crisis and the border crises and um, you know we're starving for this this movement of of the heart, of compassion, of seeing resonating with the plight of others. You know, when I, I was in Europe some years ago, at the height of the Syrian refugee crisis, actually when it first sort of erupted into the onto the European stage, and there was a you know there was a mixed response, as there often is to these tragedies, and um, you know, both an outpouring of care and also the NIMBY situation uh, response of these are not my people, we put up the borders and we're not going to let them in. This is not my problem. And um, uh, and then the, the, the tragedy of the Syri- young Syrian boy washed up on the beach. Tragic. And, certain, and that was all over the front pages and suddenly it went from a political... Cr- 
political issue to a humanitarian crisis because we could resonate. Oh, these are people, and then there were interviews of the father who was completely distraught, who had fled warfare to get a better life for his family, and people could resonate. Oh, this is just like me. This person wants to have a good life for his family. This is not a political problem. This is a social. This is a humanitarian problem. So, and as we've also been looking at here, compassion, like all of these practices, begins with how do we relate to ourselves? How do we relate to our own pain? How do we turn towards this? Because if I can't towards, to, turn towards this pain, how am I going to relate to your pain? Right? How often do we avoid people, and particularly people, who uh, have the same wounds that we have, but we can't deal with it? We can't deal with it. We can't deal with them because we can't deal with our own pain. So we reject them. So turning to so I so I, I, I talk about this this turn this this the turn that happens in our in our life and in our practice where we learn to turn towards rather than away. We learn to lean into rather than avoid. We learn to open to rather than reject. This is a fundamental, important movement in, in, in our practice and in life. And um, with, self, with compassion, it begins with the cultivation of self-compassion. It's turning towards ourselves with heartfulness, which can arise out of this practice of awareness when we actually open and acknowledge, oh, this is painful, this is suffering. Whenever you're going through some struggle, some, some difficulty, some pain, one of the most simple and obvious, but something we don't do, is we acknowledge to ourselves, oh, this is hard. Right? I say this to people, friends, a lot. You know, when people report, like today, people reporting things that are really difficult. And my only response is, wow, that's really hard. That sounds really painful. That sounds really difficult. I don't really know what to say, you know. And then, you know, because I'm in a teacher role, I think of something to say, you know. Hopefully it's helpful, you know. We have a dialogue and, you know, um, because the person's asking for some help, so it doesn't help just to say, well, that's hard. They already know that. But the point is... (laughs) The point is, we do that and acknowledge others' pain. We don't do that with ourselves. Just think of all the pain that you go through. How often do you just say to yourself, God, this is hard? Because when you say this is hard, it's like, oh, wow. I feel the struggle of that. And and we develop that empathic kindness for ourselves. It opens the doorway of self-compassion. So Kristen Neff, who's a researcher and psychologist and meditator, um, she has these three three principles in self-compassion. I think are of, of note um, that that make the shift for, from 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 uh, you know aversion, say, to, to compassion. She says, being kind and understanding with your suffering rather than self-judging. Recognizing pain uh, is unavoidable and universal and not your own fault. And the third is the ability to face rather than turn away from your pain. 
So being kind rather than judge, seeing the universal nature of it, and turning towards rather than away. And so this is what we do in our practice. We turn towards, we show up moment after moment, sit after sit. Oh, there's the pain again. Oh, well, let me sit and breathe and feel and wish loving kindness or whatever kind of practice you're doing. I had a student who came on a retreat years ago. It was a retreat. Uh, I was teaching with some MBSR teachers and we were, uh, it was a mindfulness retreat for healthcare practitioners. And uh, uh, a student of mine was there. She's a doctor, oncolo- doctor of oncology, a psychiatrist uh, in, working in oncology with teens and had done for 25 years. And she said she had filing cabinets and filing cabinets of all her patients who died, teenagers. And she'd done that work year after year after year. And, you know, being in a professional role as, as one can be in, in, in the medical profession as a psychiatrist, there was the pressure not to show emotion. It was considered unprofessional, as weird as that is. And so you can imagine she had this massive dam that was bursting of grief. And she said, what do I do with this grief? It's so intense. I feel paralyzed. And I said... Let it weep, let it weep, let it pour, let the dam burst, let it weep. And so she just sobbed the whole retreat. And then we ended up working together and she sobbed the whole year. And she sobbed half of the next year. She had so much grief and tears, patience, family losses, personal losses, mostly patience, who she loved. She was a very caring, very caring uh, doctor and um, but she came through it you know we fear that level of grief because we think we're going to drown and at times she did feel like she was drowning but it was very necessary there's no way there's you can't avoid that you have to grieve and in the end she develops tremendous stability buoyancy resiliency and 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 is able to you know this is probably 10 years ago now she's still able to do tremendously beautiful work with in the same with the same patient group with more capacity and more vulnerability and more realness and she's much more able to show her heart and her care and her tenderness So these are some of the gifts of our pain, right? They're, as much as we avoid and hate and, and do anything to not feel this stuff, right? It's this stuff, the wounds, the pains, the hurt, it's the, that transforms us, right? If you look at how you've grown and changed and healed and, and your heart has opened, right? It's not through skipping through the daisies in the you know in the meadow no it's through wrestling with some of these really hard places of loss and grief and shame and sadness and all of that so they so they transform us and they it's what makes us grow and what strengthens us But as I said, it all depends on how we meet this, right? It's, I mean, we sound like a kind of a broken record over here. How are you meeting this? <laughs> how are you welcome this? How are you opening to this, right? 
because that's such an essential part of the teaching. When you go home, how are you meeting, you know, your partner who might be really pissed off that you've been away for a week? You might be really happy to see them and missing them and long, and they're even like kind of resentful. How do you meet that? <laughs> you know, your kids have a little tent- temper tantrum because you know you weren't there picking them up from school, and you know. So, um, a little story, another story of, of how we, a beautiful story of how we meet uh, others and the tenderness of others. So, uh, this is a story from a, from a surgeon. Um, and, uh, he's saying, he's, so he's just, he's post op and he's in the, the room with the patient. And he says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth had been severed. She will be thus from now on. A surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room also. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me in private. Who are they, I thought to myself. He and this wry mouth who gaze and touch each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in the presence of a god. And mindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that the kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. Right? That's compassion in action, right? Tender, poignant, attuned, right? courageous. So we bring this to ourselves, we bring this to others, we bring this to the world. I was hoping tomorrow, Monday, uh, my friend uh, runs a local kayaking company here, and um, he, after the fires up in paradise, he did a GoFundMe campaign, very ingenious, and raised a lot of money, and um, has been buying hordes of tents and, and you know winter weather gear for you know these thousands of families who are just homeless and really dire circumstances. And um, anyhow, he drove up in a truck last week and took up you know thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gear. And um, and they raised so much they bought another truckload. And I was hoping to drive it up with him tomorrow, but uh, I, can't, I can't get away in time. Um, so, um, you know, that's what, I mean, when the heart is open, it becomes responsive, right? And, and there's a movement to help in whatever way we can. It's beautiful. The, you know, there's, um, 
you know, and I, I, I think for all of us, you know, given that in these times that we live in where there's a lot of social strife, there's a lot of bleakness, and there's a lot of horrible things happening politically here and elsewhere, it's very easy if we listen to the news all day to think that we live in a wretched world. And, that, and it's easy to believe that's the only story, but that's only one part of the story. There's a lot, there's always goodness in people, in life, in the earth. Um, and so I make a point of looking for good news, not because I'm trying to avoid the horror of what's happening, because that's hard to avoid, but to also balance that negative bias that the media has and we have. You know, there was a book I, I speak about in relationship to the ecological crisis, but it's as relevant here as anywhere. My friend and uh, teacher Paul Hawken, who is a wonderful deep ecologist and author, he wrote a book, co-author, uh, wrote a book called Blessed Unrest, where he was chronicling the, all the nonprofits and NGOs and organizations that were doing good work in the world. For some reason, he wanted to count them all. <laughs> it seems like a mammoth, Herculean, <laughs> Sisyphusian task, if that's a word. And um, his organization got up to 1.7 million organizations, of organizations dedicated to st- making a healthier planet, people, community, social fabric, which of course involved probably hundreds of millions of people affecting probably billions of people, right? And this is happening every day. People doing good work with good hearts and good intentions, making a difference for people, for creatures and the planet. And it's really important to remember that because it's so easy to feel bleak in these times. I'll speak personally. So... um, Given this movement of the heart and how important it is, it's also important to look at, well, why doesn't our hearts just flow open all the time? Why aren't we just these beacons of love and light? Well, maybe some of you are, but usually we have, you know, a few blocks here and there. As Rumi says, your task is not to seek for love, but only to seek and find all the barriers that you have built against it. Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Right? So what gets in the way of your heart opening? Right? Feeling. Right. One of the reasons is because we feel we're going to get overwhelmed if we take in another person's suffering or another. we hear of another tragedy on top of all the other tragedies we're trying to process. We'll feel overwhelmed. Sometimes we feel numb because we're also overexposing ourselves to the tragedy of life. In 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 Buddhist, uh, well, actually, in, in the in the commentaries, actually, this is from the the some of the obstacles to compassion. The, one is called the near enemy, though the the that masquerades as compassion is pity. Pity, it looks sort of caring, but it's actually uh, the heart's closed. And it's distancing. It's like, ooh, you poor thing over there. That looks really hard. <laughs> you know, This is from uh, Edward Frost. You, pity will not set f- free. Pity will not 
help others because pity does not feel others as part of oneself, but as foreign, separate, and unconnected. Pity, the near enemy, may masquerade well as compassion, but only compassion knows the pain so intimately as to be unable to resist until the other is free of it. It's a beautiful way of understanding pity. A friend who lost both parents when she was very young, and she experienced a lot of pity from from everybody because it's you know it's a sad thing but she felt it often because they couldn't tolerate the immensity of the pain she felt that pity and she said she it felt like it was burning she could and she's very sensitive she could feel when someone could actually hold her suffering versus pity and she felt it stung it's very interesting so you know other blocks to compassion we get busy you know, one way to not feel, get busy. Right? We all get busy a lot, or we get distracted, or we don't have time. There's a really interesting study on a college campus where they had two sets of students, and uh, and they were told to get to another classroom, and it was really important they get there on time to do a test or something. And one one set of students were told to rush and get there. It was really important they weren't late. And one set of students were told to take their time as far as I remember, in the, the, the data of the research, the, the group that was told to rush, not, so they, and they had a plant person, you know, where they had to cross the campus grounds and the person was, was falling over and clearly in a lot of pain. And the, the group that was told to rush, none of them stopped. And the group that took the time, more of them stopped. There's different, very, um, different ways that study's been done, but rushing was one of the, criteria so to notice you know what what gets in the way sometimes we're lazy we just don't want to, we just can't be bothered you know? or, or sometimes we feel so small and the pain seems so immense so we stay away <clears throat> but like anything this this quality is a muscle in the heart is a muscle and it grows and it strengthens. And the more that we learn to turn towards, the more that we have that capacity to hold. You know, so I, I, when I started my own, when I, early on in my practice, um, I had all kinds of people telling me like, something's up with your heart. Like for way, from way in the beginning, um, you know, and it, it was very cryptic. Just, just like something's going on there. I'm like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's, it's beating. It's you know, and actually, one, I want to bet and teach. I don't know if he did this on purpose, but he punched me in the heart as he was walking by. I was like, wow. I keep getting these messages. <laughs> I look at this heart thing, you know, and um, and I was on a long retreat. I was telling some of the staff the other day. Um, and I, I was one of those kind of spiritual ascendant, slightly bypassing types who wanted to get enlightenment or burst and get away from this messy life and not have to feel pain. That was kind of my MO. Like, and I thought enlightenment was the quickest way to it. Just beeline for it, get enlightened, and don't have to deal with all this icky, yucky, messy life stuff. And it was doing pretty good for a while. I was, you know, I was a little young hotshot, you know, and uh, doing all these long retreats and... Uh, deep meditations and you know 
And um, I was on my way to Burma, actually, to ordain as a monk. I was very passionate about the practice and very sincere. And, um, it was, you know, awakening was, was, was the most important thing in my life. And um, my wife at the time gave me a consent to go and ordain. So I was, went to do this three-month retreat. And, uh, you know, I had my visa and monastery and all set to go. And on this retreat, out of nowhere, really out of nowhere, um, uh, my heart kind of exploded uh, and in feel in, with with trauma, with some early trauma that I had no recollection, uh, preverbal trauma that had been you know in my system and had created created a certain frozenness in my heart. And um, it's not that I was a cold person, but I could tell there was a way that I couldn't really open to people fully. And uh, with, this was a very shattering traumatic, re-traumatizing experience. I, it's hard to be, it's hard to meditate. I sort of convalesced on the retreat. I went, and I was kind of homeless at the time, so I went uh, I went to England uh, to convalesce, which was also traumatizing, because that's where my trauma happened. And um, I got chronic fatigue, because uh, of just being in this regressed state. And it was very painful, very, very painful. But... The, the gift of it, as so often in the gift of our wounding, is it blew my heart open to compassion. Like, I wasn't trying to be compassionate. I don't think I would know how to do that. But the intensity of the pain was, and I was flattened, but what remained was, was this kind presence, this ability to hold the wound with, with love. And that's kind of, and it shifted my whole life where I lived, which country I lived. I let go of becoming a monk. Uh, I ended up going back to school to study psychology. I'd just been asked to start teaching, and I said, there's no way I'm going to start teaching until I know how to work with and heal this trauma and my own psychology. And um, and I tell that story because um, it was through that deep, painful work that I felt like I developed a tremendous amount of capacity to go into the dark, to go into the pain, to go into terror, annihilation, and all the other really deep and dire states that we can get into. And out of that comes a certain resilience and a certain strength and a certain courage. And I feel pretty fearless when I'm working with people because I feel like there's nowhere they can go that I haven't gone in terms of the depths of despair. I don't, not, not, obviously not the same content and the pain that someone's been through, but in terms of the inner terrors that we can feel. So these are the gifts that come out of our, the turning towards ourselves with love. So I want to share this poem that I love very much by a teacher who I still want to get to know, but I, because I love this poem so much. And this clearly someone who's walked this territory. She says, it's called Poet Korvashani. She says, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. I'm welling up as I read this. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words, through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. 
There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So, you know, many of you have traversed some of this territory. You know how deep and painful the depths of despair can be. And you also, you know, perhaps have found ways to work with that and found, notice also how this practice, these tools of awareness, kindness can be tremendous allies in that journey. And so what else does this this heart that's developed resilience, what, what, what grows from this? You know, the capacity to hold pain, the, the capacity to hold paradox, right? The capacity to hold a paradox of the immensity of pain in the world. So I often get this retreat on, on loving kindness retreats when we have this fear, this, the end, the end part of the practice, loving all beings, may all beings be happy, right? Which is a nice and a natural wish of the heart, but logically it doesn't make sense, right? Because half the beings are eating the other half of the beings to survive, literally, if not most beings eating other beings to survive. Right, including us. Right? What does it mean to wish all beings be happy? And so this woman asked that in the middle of a loving kindness retreat, and I said, and I said the mind, and there's a beautiful line. Uh, I can't remember who said this, but the mind creates the abyss, and the heart crosses over it. The mind creates the abyss, and the heart crosses over it. The mind creates duality, and the heart holds all of it. And so she's taking a walk one day up this lane up by the retreat center. It's snowy, it's winter, it's Massachusetts. And, um, and she's walking up this lane and, and she looks up and in the, from this tree there's this waterfall of feathers. And she looks up and she sees a hawk is eating a chickadee, a little, little bird. And in that moment, she wants both the hawk and the chickadee to be well. Because the heart, that's what the heart wishes. Even though one being is eating another being, the heart still wishes both to be well. The heart can hold paradox. The mind gets in knots with it. This is a more, another example from Dr. King. When he's, uh, I think this is during, um, yeah, the Montgomery, uh, boycotts. And, um, so he's giving a, a, a speech, uh, in the sixties around the time of those bus boycotts of Montgomery. And, uh, there was a bomb that detonated at his house. And uh, his wife and his family were sleeping there, and they, they rushed home. Dr. King rushed home, and his supporters rushed home. And um, and hundreds of people gathered, um, armed with knives and guns and makeshift weapons, uh, ready to do battle with the segregationists. And uh, Dr. King spoke to the crowd amidst the, the wreckage of the house, and he said, He who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them, love them, and let them know you love them. For what we're doing is right, what we're doing is just. Uh, 
this is holding tremendous paradox. Right? How do you love your enemies? How do you love, how does the heart stay open to people who want to kill you, who would rather see you dead than alive? Right? Clearly there's beings like Dr. King and many others who are emblems or pioneers or uh, you know, ambassadors of the heart. And from this place of capacity to feel comes the movement to act, whether it's my friend going up to paradise to deliver uh, clothing and tents. Um, there's a beautiful story from the time of the Buddha. I love the story when you know, often people think of the Buddha and like he's meditating in the woods, having a nice time. Thank you very much. And, you know, he lived in a time was it was like medieval Europe. There's these feudal kingdoms often at war with each other and a lot of political intrigue. And um, uh, there was a neighboring king who rose to power very unjustly and was had a lot of vengeance in his heart. And he had been slighted by the people of the Buddha's kingdom, the Shakyans. And, um, and, and at some point, the king decided to go to the war and raise, raise the Shakyan kingdom to the ground and the Buddha heard this and was distraught and so he sat on the road by the side underneath a dead tree waiting for the king and his army to come up on the way to do battle and he sat and you know and the the king was a student of the Buddha and so had great respect and they had dialogue and the Buddha was able to um, encourage him to turn back and he did Right? This is this is the heart in action. Right? It's not just wishing love and kindness, but it's actually moving, doing something, acting. There's a beautiful text in the Tibetan tradition called the Bodhicharya Avatara, the Bodhisattva's Guide to the Way of Life. A Bodhisattva is someone who takes this principle of compassion, the wish to relieve the suffering of others, and... Um, dedicates one's life to it and maybe you've maybe some of you even taken those vows where you dedicate your life for the relief of the suffering of others it's a beautiful vow there's a line from that from that text that i like he says chandideva says i should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own just like feeding myself i hope for nothing in return right when the heart grows in its capacity there's not that sense of separation there's a sense of we're all in this together and why wouldn't I want to help? I think we're living in interesting times, particularly with with the global crises we're in, with the climate crises we're in, and we're starting to see that we are literally all in this together. What I do here affects those there. What we do there affects here. And that may may wake us up in time as a species. I don't know if we will, but we might. I love in, 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 when I was in Thailand seeing the, the beautiful old hardwood teak trees that they, they ordain the trees so they won't get cut down. Right? This is compassion and action, right? Taking care of what's around us, what's in front of us, taking care of the children, taking care of whoever's in need. So, 
So I offer these words as a invitation for you to reflect on as you think about going home, transition to going home, to, you know, to really dwell in the heart, right? And and to really, uh, you know, to have the aspiration to be moving in your life from the heart, from the deepest place of kind-heartedness with yourself in all the ways that you suffer, with others that you will meet tomorrow, probably, and to the world at large, both people, species, and the tremendous loss of species we're going through, and the, the tragedy of what's happening to the planet. Can we meet that with a heartfulness, with a tenderness, with a kindness, knowing that we're not alone, knowing that what we do makes a difference, and knowing this practice is a support for that. Okay, let's sit together. Sensing your heart, sensing this aspiration or any movement in the heart to care, to love, to meet this moment with kindness. And I'll close with the Dalai Lama's daily prayer. May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all who are in need. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.